0: Uh, The Lord is indeed sovereign over us. He's sovereign over everything. And really, at the heart of what we want to look at in God's Word this morning is the overarching idea that, yes, indeed, God is 100% sovereignly in control of all things. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. We're going to finish this chapter. It's one of the longest chapters in the Bible. And while you are turning... Uh, let me just say a word of thanks to all those who were able to come yesterday for our fall workday and to help around the church. We got a lot of small projects done, and uh, we're very grateful for the manpower to be able to do that and the woman womanpower. Uh, just so uh, great to see God's people come out and to be able to help to beautify all of the facilities that the Lord has given to us. And we also want to give a shout out this morning to Harry and Maddie. Where are they at? They're back there. Uh, Raise your hand up in the air. They're recently married, so you'll want to give them a word of congratulations. So it's great to see you guys. I asked Maddie earlier if she's getting used to writing out uh, her new last name. I remember a few times when Kathy and I originally got married, she would write out her old last name, and so it takes a little while, doesn't it? But hey, congratulations. It's good to see you guys. And, um, well, we're here for a specific purpose, right? We come together on Sunday mornings as a church, as a local assembly of saints, a local assembly of believers in Jesus Christ for one particular purpose. And we gather together because we want to worship the one true living God. And this is what we have in common, isn't it? This is what we have in common with one another yes we may have common interests we may have common likes we may even have common dislikes but we come together because we're brothers and sisters in jesus christ and we want to learn more about him because we want to live for him in this life and so we have seen jesus in so many different situations as we moved our way through john chapter six And this ending to this chapter is extremely important for our understanding. When I was in Bible college, every young man training for the ministry had to take a class on homiletics, which is the study uh, of the art of preaching. And it was really one of the most practical and useful classes that I ever took. And I actually still have the textbook from that class. And it was a book by Haddon Robinson called Biblical Preaching, and it serves as a model for my belief in what is called expository preaching. And here is how Haddon Robinson defined expository preaching in his book. He said, "'Expository preaching is the communication of a biblical concept derived from and transmitted through a historical, grammatical, and literary study of a passage in its context, which the Holy Spirit first applies to the personality and experience of the preacher,' and then through him to his hearers. The word expository literally means to explain or describe or to give the sense of something. And so when we come together on Sunday mornings, that is our heartbeat, that is our goal, that is our desire to hear from God. What does he have to say to us through his his word? In his book, Robinson goes on to quote from a lecture on preaching from J.H. Jowett, and here's what he said. I have a conviction that no sermon is ready for preaching, not ready for writing out until we can express its theme in a short, pregnant sentence as clear as a crystal. I find the getting of that sentence is the hardest, most exacting, and most fruitful labor in my study. To compel oneself to fashion that sentence, to dismiss every word that is vague, ragged, ambiguous, to think oneself through to a form of words which defines the theme with scrupulous exactness, this is surely one of the most vital and essential factors in the making of a sermon. And I do not think any sermon ought to be preached or even written until that sentence has emerged clear and lucid as a cloudless moon." Well, you may or may not have noticed uh, over the years, but in keeping with that idea, every week I follow a simple structure in every sermon that I preach. First, uh, I tell you what we're going to learn from our passage or what the big idea of the passage is, and then I preach it, and then in review I tell you what I taught and what we've learned and why it matters to us. As we come to this section today, Finishing out chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. Let me just tell you on the front end, it is all about lordship salvation. In other words, those who are truly saved by the power of the Holy Spirit of God will never defect from the faith, they will never walk away from Christ as their Lord. They will endure to the end, they will persevere to the end. And as we look at this today, we're going to find that when things didn't go the way that some of Jesus' so-called disciples thought it would go, they turned away from him and they left him. And so with that in mind, let's look at our text today, beginning with verse 60, and I'll read all the way down through the end of the chapter. John 6, beginning with verse 60. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have come to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So context is everything when we study the Bible. So let me bring you up to speed as to where we're at in the text. Jesus uh, had just recently fed the 5000. He had just recently walked on the Sea of Galilee. The Galilean Jews are fascinated with Jesus and the prospect that he he might become their provider and their leader and perhaps the one who could help release them from the oppression of the Romans. And so they're following him around wherever he goes. But as soon as Jesus begins to hold them accountable for spiritual truth, they begin to grumble. They didn't want accountability, they didn't want instruction, they didn't want to repent of their sins, they just really wanted more goodies from Jesus. In chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus expresses his disgust with the lack of repentance and belief of these Galilean Jews. And listen to Jesus' reprimand, Matthew 11 verses 20 through 24 Then he, meaning Jesus, began to reprimand the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that occurred in you had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless I say to you it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, and that's where Jesus is at. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the miracles that occurred in you had occurred in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So much for Jesus being a big sissy who is tolerant of anything and everything. I mean, isn't this the mantra today? That Jesus is love. Yes, Jesus is love. Yes, Jesus came to the earth because of the love of the Father, and Jesus' love for those He would would go to the cross for. Yes, Jesus is love. We get that, but Jesus is absolutely 100% intolerant of sin, and He must punish sin. Jesus is not a sissy. He is the holy God of the universe, the creator of all things. And people must bow the knee to Jesus who is worthy. So this setting here of Jesus' sermon that he's preaching to the people. And he says that he's the bread of life that's come down out of heaven and all who believe in him will have eternal life. It's at the synagogue in Capernaum. And we looked at a couple of pictures of that last week. And it's here that we find the masses beginning to reject him and his teaching. The people turned on a dime. Remember, he was at the height of his popularity, and now all of a sudden, when they finally realize that he's calling them to repent and to turn to him, they want absolutely nothing to do with it. His popularity has taken a huge hit. And this is what often happens, right? When the truth is proclaimed, this is what often happens there are generally three potential ways that man will respond to biblical preaching. First, some will overtly scoff and outright reject the message. And these are short timers who are quick to denounce the truth of God's Word. They're easy to spot. They don't stick around very long. Second, some will sort of temporarily and tacitly embrace the message with a shallow faith they they display an initial curiosity but they have no true commitment in fact as soon as they're called to repent of their sin they they go on the offensive and they actively turn on the preacher and this is exactly what we see here in this encounter in the synagogue the people had turned on jesus and then third There are those who embrace the truth of the Scripture and exemplify true faith. They're quick to acknowledge their sin and repent, and they're desirous of being challenged to grow in their faith. And it's the third group that we want to be identified with, right? We should crave God's Word and constantly desire to grow in our walk with Him. So much preaching today, and so many preachers are walking on eggshells, trying as hard as they can not to offend. How does that? How do you? How do you do that? I mean, you can't preach God's word without it being offensive, right? I mean. Jesus is sharing some offensive things as he goes around in the region of Galilee. It's all on the basis of his love and his desire to have people embrace him. But the gospel is offensive. We have to admit that we are a sinner in need of a Savior, and that's an offensive message. The Bible does offend. John MacArthur says that hard preaching produces soft hearts, and soft preaching produces hard hearts. And I would tend to agree with him on that. Five aspects to this encounter today as we look at the text. Five aspects to this encounter. And so we want to look at the first aspect, and it's that Jesus' disciples begin to grumble. Jesus' disciples begin to grumble. Look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Grumbling has its roots in sinful negativity and ultimately, as we've said before, a lack of trust in God. And and in many ways, in a lack of seeing our own sin, being sensitive to our own sin. And we see that here, that Jesus is dealing with more grumbling, and it's not from the Galilean Jews who were following him around, but now from those who were counted among his disciples or his followers. And that's what a disciple is. A disciple is a follower or a student. And oftentimes the word disciple and the word apostle are sometimes used interchangeably. And in a sense, they're the same, but not really, because we know there were 12 apostles, right? There were 12 apostles, and the word apostle means messenger or sent one. The word disciple means follower or student. And so, there were 12 apostles that were chosen by Jesus to help to spread the message that Jesus had come to the earth and would go to the cross of Calvary, and he would die in the place of all who would Believe in him. So the, the apostles, the 12 apostles, were certainly disciples, but not all of the disciples were apostles. And, and we would be named among those who are disciples of Jesus. We are students of Jesus. We are followers of Jesus. We're here today because we love Jesus and because of what he has done for us, we want to learn more about him. We want to grow in our faith. We want to be able to live for him. We're a follower or student of Jesus. We are, in fact, a disciple of Jesus. But as has become more than evident here in the text, many of these people didn't follow Jesus because he was their Lord. They followed him because they absolutely loved all the things that Jesus could do. They loved the show because of the intrigue as to what might be next Because of the many miracles that Jesus performed, they followed Jesus not because of who he was, but for what they could get from him. It's a big, big difference. And so it's astounding here, isn't it? That John says that many, not just one or two, but many of his disciples grumbled at Jesus and what he was saying. Jesus was teaching that he was the bread of life, He, he was the living bread and that he came to the earth to die on the cross in the place of sinners. And these so-called disciples were starting to catch the reality that there would be a real cost to following Jesus, and they wanted nothing to do with that. And so they began to grumble, and they ultimately walk away. And so this brings us to Jesus' response to their grumbling. So number two, Jesus responds to their grumbling. Look at verse 62. What then, if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and truth and life. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew... Now get this. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would ultimately betray him. And so really, just like that, I mean, Jesus' popularity begins to dwindle. He was the show. He was the one that everyone was talking about. But when Jesus began to talk to the people and to relay what it is that he means when he says he's the bread of life, he's the living bread, and what the cost is for following him, oh my goodness, the people turned and ran. They grumbled. These, these people who were following Jesus around who would say, we are a follower of Jesus, a student of Jesus. But as soon as they realized that Jesus was calling For something from them, they not only grumbled, but they hit the bricks. So again, what he's saying here, he's referring to himself again as the son of man, which is a reference to him being fully man. But then he couples that with where he came from, which is the abode of heaven, which is the abode of God. And so again, he's sharing with them that he is God incarnate, God in the flesh, he is God in the, in the flesh, truly God, truly man. So Jesus begins to lay out again the importance of genuine belief. He says the words that he has spoken to them are the words of life, and they are spiritually appraised. But these Galileans are only interested in what would gratify their flesh. And we need to be careful with that. We need to be careful with that. That we seek after that which gratifies our flesh or feeds our ego or provides something physical for us. The Christian life begins with our heart, our heart towards God. Everything that flows out of our heart is sort of the physical part of our interaction with the Lord. But it starts in the heart, the spiritual part. And Jesus is trying to drill down to their hearts. And when he looks at their hearts, they're dark. They're extremely dark. They want nothing to do with Jesus as God, as the Messiah, as the Holy One, anointed of God, that would come to the earth and die in the place of sinners. They want no part of that. As long as they can get what gratifies the flesh. And picture this, Jesus then tells them that he knows that some of them do not believe. That probably blew them away because Jesus is God. He knows all things. He is omniscient. But he not only knows who will or won't believe, he knows the Father has chosen those who will believe before the foundation of the world. He says from the beginning here in verse 64. You cannot read the Bible and not see over and over again that God is sovereign over everything, including the salvation of the souls of men. Folks may not like it. Folks may not like that truth, but it is abundantly clear that God chooses those whom he will save. And we should be so grateful (laughs) that he does that, because if he didn't, no one would come to him on their own. Isn't that what he is saying over and over again in this passage? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That is not convoluted. That's not hard to understand. That's exactly what he said and exactly what he means. And he's going to repeat it again here in verse 65. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. I, uh, I really struggled this week, to be honest with you, about a lot of things as it relates to this passage because there is so much that I could share. And so I've tried to be somewhat strategic in what I share just because of our time constraints. But I want to take you here because I think this is a, a common misunderstanding that folks sometimes have, so I want to address it, and especially in light of this idea of God electing people for salvation or choosing people for salvation. Look at verse 1 of, sec, of sec, uh, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has done what? He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the dead. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. So, he says... In the first couple verses, Peter does that, these people are chosen by the foreknowledge of God, right? They're chosen on the basis of the foreknowledge of God. We were just talking to a pastor recently, probably within the last six months, and we were talking about some theological things, and this came up. And as we were talking about sovereign election, sovereign grace, the Lord's authority as it relates to everything, including salvation, we came to this passage of scripture where it says that they were chosen by the foreknowledge of God. And so he says to me, There it is. Yes, absolutely. 100% they're chosen. On the basis of God knowing that they're going to choose Him. No, that's not what it means. That is not what it means. And this guy has been in the ministry for a long, long time. I said, Have you ever sat down and studied the passage? Have you ever compared Scripture with Scripture as it relates to what God does in salvation? Well, yeah. But I mean, it's clear that He chose them on the basis of His foreknowledge. Well, that's true. That's what it says. What's foreknowledge mean? It's a relational knowledge that he's speaking of here. It's akin to foreordination or even predestination. Look at verse 20. If, if that's what foreknowledge meant, that God looked out into the future, saw who was going to choose him, then he chooses them on that basis, then God is a reactor to man, right? Right? God's not sovereign. He's a reactor to man. He just knows stuff. He just knows things. He knows what's going to happen in the future, but he has no control over what happens in the future. He's a responder, a reactor to what is going to happen in the future. If indeed that was the interpretation of verse 2 in our passage here in verse Peter chapter 1, Then it certainly doesn't square with verse 20, does it? For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Talking about Christ being foreknown. So is that that God looked out into the future and saw that Jesus would come to the earth? He's speaking about the relationship that he's had eternally with the Son and that the Son would come to the earth and he would die in the place of sinners. Foreknowledge in verse 2 cannot mean that God looked out into the future and saw who would choose him and chose them on that basis. That would be satisfying for some. These are hard truths, by the way these are hard truths because we're all about fairness, right? We're all about what's fair. And and, and I always say to people that say, well, how is that fair, Pat? How is it fair that God saves anyone? The wages of sin is death. How is it fair that any of us do not, are not extinguished at the moment of our first sin? So verse 20 shoots a giant hole in the argument that that's what foreknowledge means. And by the way, Acts 2.23, which we won't turn to, uh, pairs this together and is so extremely helpful, Acts 2.23, and you can look at that later. But all of this brings us to Jesus reiterating the sovereignty of God in salvation. So if we go back to John chapter 6, we see here at number 3 Jesus reiterates the sovereignty of God in salvation. Look at verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and it was that and, and who it was that would betray him and he was saying and listen to the almost exact same words that we saw in verse 44. So he wants to reiterate again in verse 65 what he's already said to the same group of people. He says, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Why? Because of their sin. Why? Because of total depravity. That sin has infected every aspect of their being, their intellect, their emotions, their will. They don't want Jesus. They don't want Jesus. And we wouldn't have wanted Jesus either unless he drew us to himself. This is what's so amazing about grace. And before I grasped this and understood this and studied this years and years and years ago, I had no idea I'd sing Amazing Grace in church. I thought, yeah, it's a good song. It's my favorite hymn, That and Wonderful Grace of Jesus. These are great hymns. But when I realized who I was as a wretched, awful sinner that violated the character of God and the law of God, and how he looks at my feeble attempts to be religious and to gain favor with him. He looks at him as filthy rags. It was only at that point that I started to realize about amazing grace and how amazing it is because none of us deserve his grace. Isn't that what grace is? The unmerited favor of God. All of it is a gift. And that's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 really crystallized for us. All of it is a gift. Our salvation is something we do not deserve. And God's not a reactor to man. God doesn't look out into the future and go, Oh, oh, he's, he's going to choose me you're chosen. Oh, he's going to She. You're chosen. It's not what the scriptures teach. God is sovereign over all things, like it or not, including the souls that he'll save. Now, just listen to a sample of passages of scripture that speak to this. Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, relationally, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Ephesians 1 We want to talk about our will all the time. What about God's will? To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, "...in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory." Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And this is really just scratching the surface of the myriad of passages that deal with God's sovereign grace. Now, some clarification. God is not the author of sin And I do not believe the scriptures teach that he elects folks to hell. I think that's a mischaracterization. I think it's going too far. It's man's sin, which man is culpable for. It's man's sin that causes the divide between him and God. And man's sin and its consequences fall on man, not God. Man is responsible to believe. Man wants nothing to do with God. Man's will has been tainted by his sin. So God must draw man to himself. He must grant salvation to men. Yes, all men, all women, all children must volitionally believe. They must believe with their heart that Jesus is God and that he has been raised from the dead and that by placing their faith and trust in Him, they may have eternal life, that He is the living bread. Yes, they must believe that. That's all part of this drawing that Jesus is talking about here. I think folks have this idea that there are all these people who are pounding on the doors of heaven to let them in, but it's just the opposite. It literally is just the opposite. Sinners like us are running as fast as we can away from heaven, but God, in His great love and grace and mercy, changes our hearts. He changes our will. And in time, we will believe in Him. It's amazing. It's amazing. I was religious. (laughs) I was really religious. I was a church kid, man. I was religious as you can get, and I've talked to you about this before. My testimony is unique to me in the sense that I lived it, but I think it's very similar with a lot of you. A lot of us grew up uh, in the church, and we were really religious. We learned about Jesus. We learned about these things, but it wasn't until the Lord drew me to Himself that I actually believed believed in who I was, a rotten sinner that was relying upon religion to win favor with God. This brings us then to verse 66. And Jesus' fake disciples walk away from Him. Jesus' fake disciples walk walk away from him. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And I'll be honest, some of the most heartbreaking things that I've ever witnessed as a pastor centers around this troubling reality. People who seemed at one time to have spiritual interest, who even had regularly attended church, may have been somewhat involved in the church just watching their Lives implode and watch them walk away from the Lord is gut wrenching. It is so difficult. A true believer will never defect, never walk away. He can't because he has been drawn by the Father. When this happens, it's proof. That they were never truly saved. Why? Because he who began a good work in us will complete it. Amen. I think if we, I mean, if this, if salvation was all about us, I mean, are there days where you wake up and you go, eh, "I'm not feeling it today. I'm just not feeling it." Something happened yesterday. Eh, I don't even want to read my Bible. I don't even want to pray today. I'm not feeling it today. God keeps us saved because He did all the work. You see, when we rely upon us, we'd mess it up. But we rely upon Him. And so He has drawn us to Himself, He has powerfully saved us with His amazing grace. And he keeps us in his hand. I mean, this is what would make me shout in church. A shout of celebration, as Bruce mentioned earlier. We don't do a lot of shouting in church because we know the verse that says that we're to do everything decently and in order. And so we like lean way that way. It's not decent. It's not in order. Don't want to show any emotion in church. No, it's fine. Just don't run up and down the aisles and crush somebody. It's OK. We're emotional beings. Uh, we should be emotional about this truth. We should be emotional about the fact that God loved us and sent Christ to come, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Wow, that is amazing grace. Well, his fake disciples just walk away, seen it happen. It's heartbreaking. The men that followed Jesus around, they would have called themselves his disciples. They turn and they walk away. Why? Because they finally realize what Jesus is calling for and the cost in following him. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew ten thirty four and following. He said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Who, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and, and yet loses his soul? I want, to, I want to stand and proclaim this to the masses. What does it profit you? What does it profit you to have all the worldly goods and forfeit your soul? It's not wrong to have worldly goods. But we can't serve two masters. We must serve Jesus Christ as Lord and master of our life. And acknowledge that whatever we have whatever we've been given he gave it to us and we're to use it for him this brings us then to the finality of the passage really here in verses 67 through 71 it's the fifth aspect of this encounter and it's this jesus is the lord of his true disciples Jesus is the Lord. Look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, curios, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that, that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? And now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So those who make up Jesus' twelve apostles are with him. Jesus turns to them and asks him if any of them plan to walk away like these others. And Peter speaks up and he says, no, you are our Lord you are our Lord, our master, kurios in the Greek. Where else is there to turn? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. What a testimony from the words of Peter. And Jesus responds by reminding them that while he has selected them, one of them is a the devil, meaning Judas, who would later betray Christ. And so we ask the question, is Jesus our Lord. Is Jesus our, our Lord? The word Lord here is kurios. It means master. Is Jesus our master? This isn't really that hard of a question. The ramifications of it are huge. If Jesus is our Lord, it is proof of our salvation. There was this controversy that ignited back in the late 20th century between Arminian and Calvinistic theologians, and the controversy centered around what constitutes saving faith. And this controversy later became known as the lordship salvation debate, and that's what this is all about. Essentially, those who would embrace the theology of Jacob Arminius said that God's grace is free and there's no need for repentance of sin and a desire to make Jesus the Lord of one's life. Those who would embrace the teaching of John Calvin said, yes, God's grace is free in that man can't earn it, can't work for it. But sinful man must repent of his sin and believe in Christ. And if he does, it will result in good works. Good works doesn't save anyone. Salvation is all of God's grace, but repentance and faith go hand in hand, and Jesus must be embraced as both Savior and Lord. And this is crystal clear from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. One more passage to turn to, Second Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. Second Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. For those who would say that repentance is not a part of saving faith... Verse 10 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So there is a worldly sorrow and there's a godly sorrow. A worldly sorrow is kind of along the lines of, I'm sorry I did that, I'm sorry I got caught. I understand now the ramifications of it. A godly sorrow immediately makes us think about how this has offended God, what we have done. That's a godly sorrow. And so when God draws us to himself and he grants us the faith to believe, as he's reiterated over and over in the text, there's a change that goes on in our life when we believe. Old things have passed away right? Behold, all things become new. What did the pastor say that Don read for us this morning? By their fruit, you will know them. I was talking to a woman one time about her son. Her son had been in and out of jail, was a vile person, drunk most of the time, Lived a carnal, vile life. And the mom said, but he prayed a prayer when he was six. And so the heart of a mother wanting and desiring for their child to be saved is holding on to a prayer at a kitchen table that he repeated after his mother at the age of six is that what salvation is? Is Jesus the Lord of that guy's life? Is Jesus the Lord of our life? You know, I think people would stand in line if they could have Jesus be their Savior. Right? There'd be a long line. Hey, get out of hell. Free card, fire insurance, we're all in. Right? I think there would be a long line. I think people would line up by the millions for that. As long as they don't have to make Jesus their Lord and submit to him as their master. Oh, we want the goodies, just like those so-called disciples were following around Jesus. Oh, they want what Jesus can provide, but they don't want Jesus. Jesus is our Lord and Master and so to be clear, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But when God saves us, he continues working in us so that we manifest good works. It's the result of our salvation. And I think we grow in that. Our, we, justification means we're declared righteous. That's the moment of salvation. We're justified but then there's this sanctification where we are, yes, sanctified positionally at salvation, but we continue to grow in our understanding of the things of God. As, as we're pouring over this in, in our church, we're growing. We're learning. We're examining our hearts. We're asking ourselves the hard questions. We're being challenged by the Word of God, and we want to grow. And that's the sanctification part. So the easy believism people would say, no, you don't need any Of that. There's no need for evidence. It's just you prayed the prayer, and that's called easy believism, and we've heard that term before, right? R.C. Sproul said it this way, and I'll close with this. Good works are not necessary for us to earn our justification. They are never the ground basis of our justification. They are necessary in another more restricted sense. They are necessary corollaries to true faith. If a person claims to have faith, yet brings no fruit of repentance, of of obedience whatsoever, it is proof positive that the claim to faith is a false claim. True faith inevitably and necessarily bears fruit. The absence of fruit indicates the absence of faith. We are not justified by the fruit of our faith. We are justified by the fruit of Christ's merit. We receive his merit only by faith but it is only by true faith that we will receive his merit, and all true faith yields true fruit. The last word I wrote in my sermon was a question, and it was amen. Amen. I mean, isn't that what we celebrate? That God has saved us by his amazing grace? I hope we never get over it. I hope we never get over it. I hope it affects us every day of our lives. The amazing grace of God. God has granted us salvation. Lord, thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. Thank you for all of it. Thank you for your your saving uh, power in our lives that you, despite our sin, drew us to yourself and you have saved us. Lord, thank you for the gift of grace and faith to believe. And Lord, as we have done that, many of us, most of us perhaps, may we be reminded continually that you are our Lord and master. And may we make all of our decisions in life based upon that. May we be so grateful for what you've done for us that we just want to please you most of all with our lives. And we thank you. And we praise You in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.